Our scripture this morning is from Matthew chapter 21. We are continuing our study in the book of Matthew. And if you want to follow along in your, in your pew Bible, it's page 826. 826, we'll be going, um, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get us back, so you won't see this on the screen, but I'm going to get us, start us in verse 12 and get us to verse 17. We'll actually be studying verses 14 through 17, which is up there. Beginning Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, You hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you've prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Jesus, show us who you are this morning. Holy Spirit, by your power to open our minds and our hearts to understand the word that you have inspired Show us our King Jesus. Father, glorify your Son in our worship this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, since we've been in Matthew for such a long time, and so many of you are new, as I look around, there's a lot of people who have begun to come well into our study in the book of Matthew. So I want to remind you all and catch some of you up of what's happening in the gospel according to Matthew. And to do that, I have to remind you of what the gospel accounts are. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. John tells us most clearly what the gospel accounts are when he tells us what his account is. He says, it is written, he's written his gospel, or the gospel according to John, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then he says, and that by believing, we would have life in Christ's name. That's what John's doing, and that's what Matthew is doing as well when he has written down this gospel for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of Matthew's book, he says this is the book of the genealogy. You have a slide here, Matthew 1.1 there. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then what he does is he proves to us throughout the rest of the book that Jesus is the Christ, the promised king from David's line, who reigns forever, and the promised offspring of Abraham, through whom the nations are blessed. In the early days of the church, when Matthew's gospel was written, evangelism simply meant taking this good news of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, and taking that far and wide. 
This was the, the kingdom of heaven. The announcement is the kingdom of heaven is broken into the world, and the Messiah, king of that kingdom, is Jesus. He is the Christ. He's the one who fulfills the scriptures, and he was crucified for our sins, and he was resurrected, and he ascended into heaven, and he sits at God's right hand. And we know that's what the gospel proclamation was because we see it in the book of Acts. We have all these sermons from the book of Acts that, that tell us this is what the apostles were doing. Pastor Saunders showed us from Acts 17 a few weeks ago that when Paul went to Thessalonica, he reasoned from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Back in November, when we read from 1 Corinthians 15 for, for our creed, we saw this. Paul reminding the Corinthian church that that was his message to them. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. That's, that is the gospel message. But the most challenging aspect of this message is that part about Christ, the Messiah, dying. Because everyone knew anointed kings don't die, especially someone who is supposed to be the king of an eternal kingdom. How could that type of king die? That is the most difficult aspect of the gospel for people who were hearing it for the first time way back in the first century. For the Greeks, Gentiles who were hearing it, the idea that an anointed king would die, that was foolishness. For the Jews who were expecting this Messiah king to arrive, the fact that he would die was a stumbling block. Jesus' death is why why many people could not believe that he was the Messiah. But Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Peter and Paul and all the apostles are saying, but Jesus did die, and in fact, the Old Testament prophesied that this anointed king would die. Messiah had to die. Why? Because of that line that Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 15, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He had to die. The scriptures said he would die. And those of us who have begun to trust in Jesus Christ as our king, we know that his death for us, as we've sung this morning, his death for us makes us his own. And it's, it's central to the gospel. He had to die to save us from our own sin. So when we put Matthew's gospel that we've been studying in the 21st century, and we, and we try to read it in, the, in a first century context where, where it was written, to, to whom it was written, we realize that this gospel is, is an apologetic. You know what I mean by that? It's, a, it's an argument for something. It's an apologetic for Christ as Messiah, or Jesus as Messiah, and because Jesus is Messiah, his death atones for our sins. And the Old Testament said it would be this way. That's the argument that Matthew's making. 
And the way that Matthew has been arguing this for us is not like we're used to. When we, when we read an argument for something, we're looking for propositional truths leading to a conclusion. Right? So A, B, therefore C. Matthew doesn't write like that. We shouldn't expect him to. He was writing to Jews in the first century, not Americans in the 21st century. And so he makes his arguments in a very Jewish way. And we should be very okay with that. Right? He, he, what he does is he uses all of Israel's history, all of the prophets, all of the great leaders from Israel, the law, the promises, all of these expectations, and he uses that Old Testament story, the story of Israel, the story of the world, and he uses that as the lens to view the Christ story, Jesus' story. And through seeing Jesus this way, Matthew is showing us Jesus is the expected one. He is the anointed one. He's the promised one who came to be the savior of the nation, not just the nation of Israel, though. But because of all of that fulfillment happening, he is the savior of people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. Just as an example, if you'll remember a few weeks ago when we were studying Jesus coming into Jerusalem and he's, he comes into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. He starts on the Mount of Olives and we saw how the way that Matthew told that story to us and the language that he uses, which he was comparing Jesus to King David. And, and the way that he came in from the Mount of Olives was, was foreshadowing for us, the readers were reading this, that once he entered the city, he would be met with opposition. And he, in death, really. And it wasn't just David that Matthew was, was echoing. He was, he was showing us how Jesus was filling the, the promises made through the prophet Zechariah and the promises made through the prophet Isaiah. And he's showing all of these things to show us the significance of what's happening when this man, Jesus, starts on the Mount of Olives and he rides on a donkey's colt into the city. And when he entered the city and came into the temple, Jesus, remember he was quoting uh, Jeremiah and he's quoting Isaiah and he's quoting Zechariah over and over again. We're seeing all of this Old Testament just packed into little verses. This event was so important, it is so important, that Matthew has to show us how this is fulfilling these Old Testament promises. And that really makes sense, because what's happening here, where we are in Matthew's gospel? The Messiah is coming into the holy city, like the, the capital city, the king coming into the capital city, and he's coming, the one who is the Lord with us, Emmanuel, is coming into his temple. This is a momentous occasion that I don't think we can really feel the depth of or the gravity of where we are now in history. And so I say all of that because in order for us to kind of grasp it, we have to do some work. We have to do some Old Testament work. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do that today. We'll, we'll see Jesus coming into the arrival at his temple and what's happening there. We're going to see two really big Old Testament references. And Matthew's going to pull those out for us. 
And we're going to see in that that both of these references reveal more to us of who Jesus is. And the first big point that we're going to see here, if you're a note taker, is that Jesus is greater than David, which is a big deal. The second one is that God wills that he be praised. So we're just going to look at these references and the way Matthew uses them and try to grasp their significance, not just to who Jesus is, but why this matters. All right, so let's start in verse 14. And I've got as many of the verses as I could on the screen for you, but you'll also want to follow along in your Bible. So verse 14, Matthew tells us, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now, what's the big deal here? Jesus has already healed blind and lame people. Actually, quite a number of them. And if Matthew is, is proving that, he's, that Jesus is the Messiah, he's already proved that he can heal the blind and lame. But there, there's something I want you to notice. At, at other points in Matthew's gospel, the way that he brings the, these words together, he, he'll sometimes just mention that two blind men were healed. Sometimes they'll say there was a blind and a mute person. Once it was the lame and the blind and the crippled and the mute and many others. But in every case, in every healing that Jesus has done, Matthew has shown us that at least one specific Old Testament prophecy was being fulfilled. Or at least a reference was being made. So so as we've begun to read the Gospel of Matthew in this way, we should be looking... For an Old Testament reference here. Well, this reference to the blind and the lame and the city of Jerusalem has to do with King David again. We shouldn't be surprised. Jesus is the son of David. They're calling him the son of David. They're saying Hosanna to the son of David. The blind man, as he was on his way, as Jesus was on his way in, was saying, Son of David, have mercy on me. So this David theme isn't going away. But this particular reference is a little bit unusual. And you probably heard it when Christian was reading from our Old Testament scripture this morning from 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, the context is this. King David has just officially become king. He's up in Hebron. He's just become king. And his first military act, really his first act at all, the first thing he does as king is to attack Jerusalem and to take it from the Jebusites, Israel's enemies. Well, David had to do this, and he had to do this for a number of reasons. For the first, he needed a capital, and Hebron was not a a good capital. He needed a place from where he could rule. He needed a better place. And he also had to complete the cleansing of the land. Israel's enemies should not have still been in Israel at this point in history. But because of the failure of previous rulers, Israel's enemies were still within the nation's boundaries. The Jebusites had to be removed from the land, and David, the king who was after God's own heart, was going to remove them from the land. He was going to cleanse the land because he is the priestly king who cleanses the land. But there was another reason that David had to take Jerusalem, a God-ordained reason. Jerusalem, or Salem, was the city that way, 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 way back in Genesis 14 was ruled by a priest king named Melchizedek. 
And that's significant because Melchizedek was the first king in the Bible who was also a priest. And David's legacy was as the priestly king. Think of Psalm 110 that you looked at last week. And this is going to come up again very soon in Matthew. Very, very soon. But in Psalm 110, David is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, the priest king. So no matter how you look at it, taking Jerusalem as his capital is David's number one priority. It's it's at the very top of his to-do list as king. But there's difficulty here. The difficulty with taking Jerusalem was that the city was naturally defensible. That's what makes it a good capital. It's at the top of a hill. It's very easy to guard from attack. The Jebusites, the people who were holding this city, they knew that it was difficult to attack. They knew that no one could take it easily. And so in 2 Samuel, they're gloating. Kind of from the, from the castle walls, looking over, shouting at David with a French accent. There's no, there's no way David's army could take the city. That, that's what they're saying. You cannot come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off. They're saying our city is so well protected, it's so well guarded that we can use blind soldiers. We can use legless soldiers to keep you out. And you don't stand a chance. Oh, the rest is history, isn't it? David and his army conquered Jerusalem. And they do it, 2 Samuel tells us, by climbing up a 50-foot water shaft. That was the only Achilles heel to the city. So they climb up, a, the entire army climbs up a 50-foot water shaft to the city. The city surrenders. And then that taunt, that Jebusite's taunt about the blind and the lame is immortalized by David, who says, the blind and the lame, in quotes, really, he's talking about the Jebusites, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And by house, that would eventually come to mean the Lord's house in Jerusalem. And that saying became a way to remember David's conquering act. He took Jerusalem from the Jebusites, from the so-called blind and lame. Well, by the time you get to Jesus' day, hundreds of years later, that old saying would have still been really well known by the people in the city because these are the stories they grew up on. This is their heritage. These these stories define who they are as a people. So it's not like a, a small hinted reference. This is who they are. So when they see all the people are there, it's a big scene, Jesus is in the temple, and when the people around him see the blind and the lame coming to Jesus in the temple, in the Lord's house, in Jerusalem, the very place that David had conquered, the great question is, what's he going to do? What's going to happen? Is Jesus going to turn away the blind and the lame and say with David, the blind and the lame are not welcome here? Because if he did... If Jesus did that, that would be a very David thing to do. And since Messiah is supposed to be in the line of David, you actually expect him to do this, to turn these people away. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't turn them away. Jesus heals them. And this is 
paradigm shift. This is a big deal. Jesus, the Messiah, the promised son of David, is inaugurating a new kingdom, a new way in Jerusalem. The old kingdom has long since passed away. The new kingdom, the eternal heavenly kingdom, is just that. It's new. And in this new kingdom, all are welcome who will submit to Jesus as king. Because Jesus, the Christ, isn't just any king. He's the priestly king. He's the one who intercedes for his people, and he reconciles them to God. And Jesus does this in a way that David never could have dreamed of. David was a conquering king. We know that. You read 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, you see this, this or the Chronicles, David is a conquering king, and you saw through the sword and the bloodshed of his enemies over and over again, David eventually brought peace to the land. And he brought the, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to, to show God is present with his people. The kingdom is being established. Jesus, though, conquers a much greater enemy. Sin and death. And Jesus does that by shedding his own blood. And his sacrifice brings us peace with God. And as we'll see in a minute, Jesus is the bringer of the new covenant between God and the people. He's the very presence of God with his people. So while Jesus is the promised son of David, as Messiah, Jesus is infinitely greater than David. You see that? David's greatness was in conquering Israel's earthly enemies, but through David's might, the nation of Israel became more exclusive. Jesus' greatness is in conquering Israel and our enemies, all of humanity's enemies, our spiritual enemies. And through Jesus' work, Israel, as the kingdom of God, becomes more inclusive. The blind are welcomed. The lame are welcomed. The children are welcomed. The outcast, the unclean are welcomed. And this is important for you and me. Because in this kingdom, sinners are welcomed. And Gentiles, outsiders, the nations, us, we're welcomed. If Jesus weren't greater than David, we couldn't be a part of his kingdom. But praise God, Jesus is greater than David. But he's more than that. Look at what Matthew shows us next. We're moving on to our second point now, that it is God's will that Jesus be praised. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. And if you're like, I never knew that that's what that blind and lame thing, I didn't either before I studied the text this week. So if that seems surprising to you, it's, it's simply because we don't know our Old Testament as well as the people who first received this did. That's why I, I, I take the time to study it. And uh, I'm glad that God is showing us these things so we can understand his word better. But let's look at verses 15 and 16. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. And that really is a, a, a definite Yes. It's his only response at first. And then he turns it on them. Have you never read? 
These are the chief priests and the scribes, okay? He's asking them if they've ever read their Bibles. This is highly insulting. Have you never read Psalm 8? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you've prepared praise. We know Jesus has always had his enemies. From the very beginning of Matthew, we've seen Jesus' enemies. From the time his birth was announced, before he even exits the womb, the enemy was trying to kill him. And it got worse when he gets older and he starts preaching. And worse when he began to reveal who he really was through his miracles. And as the day draws closer and he's getting closer to Jerusalem, and he's getting closer to his crucifixion, he's starting to tell his disciples, do you remember this? We have to go to Jerusalem. I have to go to Jerusalem where the elders and the chief priests and the scribes are going to kill me. And here we are in the story, and we finally arrived in Jerusalem, and right on schedule, the chief priests and the scribes, just as Jesus described it, they hate him. Matthew says they were indignant when they saw the wonderful things he was doing. The text doesn't tell us why his miracles made them so angry. We can speculate, though, without getting too off base. It could be that because he was welcoming the blind and the lame and healing them, that made them upset because their tradition said those guys weren't supposed to be in the temple to begin with. So maybe they're upset about that. Jesus is doing things that just aren't done. It could be that they're jealous. They're jealous of all this attention that Jesus is receiving. Could be that they're still upset with Jesus for flipping over all those tables and driving out the merchants. And, you know, they were probably getting a piece of that. So they are a little frustrated by what's just happened. Probably maybe all of those things, right? But what is absolutely clear is that these leaders are upset that people are praising Jesus. They're praising Jesus. The, the children are crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Earlier, it was the, the people who followed him into the city who were crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is all the same day. And the religious leaders see all of these things happen, and they ask that question of Jesus. That's really more than a question, isn't it? It's more of an accusation. Jesus, do you hear what they're saying to you? And Jesus says, yes, I do. And you can, you can almost see a smile, can't you? A smirk, maybe. And the gospel, according to Luke, records this exact same event, really similarly. In, in Luke chapter 19, the, the Pharisees are, are telling Jesus, make these people stop praising you. Luke 19.40, Luke records for us, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. They're saying, stop receiving praise from the people. And let's just pause for a moment. And can we just acknowledge that these religious leaders, at least in their theology, they're right. They're right to stop people from praising a man in this way. Is there any reason why any of us should worship any human should we ever be worshiping a president? Should we worship an athlete or an actor or a writer or a musician or anyone? No. No human is worthy of this type of praise. To praise any man or any woman is 
pure and simple idolatry. That's sinful. Ten Commandments, sinful. So if Jesus is only a man, then these priests and scribes are right to become angry and demand that Jesus stop the people from praising him. But Jesus isn't only a man, is he? That's why Jesus responds the way he does. That's why he doesn't stop receiving praise. In Luke, when Jesus quotes Isaiah 55 and he says, if, the, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. He's saying that all of creation would be worshiping me. And in Matthew, quoting Psalm 8, he says, have you not read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you've prepared praise? Jesus, his point in responding to these men whether you're reading Luke's account or Matthew's account, is this, it's God's will that I be praised. It is God's will that Jesus be praised. And this has implications that reach far beyond what we can imagine. Because if it is God's will that Jesus be praised as he's going into the city, as he's in the temple, the place where God is to be praised, then Jesus is going to be praised. The gospel that Jesus is the Christ is going to be proclaimed because it's God's will that it be proclaimed. Jesus was praised and his gospel was being proclaimed by these little toddlers and the chief priests and the scribes are indignant and there's absolutely nothing they can do to stop it. They can't stop the praise of Jesus. Why? Because, as Jesus says in our text, God has prepared this praise. It is the will of God that Jesus be praised. And because God wills it, nothing can stop the praise of Jesus. Nothing will stop the proclamation of the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. All throughout the history of the church, this has been the case. In the early church, at the very beginning, in the, starting with the very book of Acts, we see this dynamic happening. Nothing stops the praise of Jesus. From beginning to end, that's the story in the book of Acts. The gospel is preached. People try to stop it, and it only amplifies the sound. It only amplifies the preaching of the gospel, the praise of Jesus. And the more the devil does to try and stop the praise of Jesus, the further the gospel spreads. And it goes from Jerusalem. And they persecute the Christians, and it goes to the rest of Judea, and then it goes to Samaria, and it goes to the edge of the known world. Nothing stops the praise of King Jesus. Every persecution throughout the history of the church has only taken the gospel further and further because it is the will of God that Jesus be praised. And so long as it is the will of God that Jesus be praised, there is no obstacle. There's no obstacle to the proclamation of the gospel that won't be overcome. No government, no law, no false teaching, no demonic force, nothing. Nothing will stop the advancement of the praise of King Jesus. Nothing can stop it because it is God's will. This past week, the House of Representatives of our nation passed this so-called Equality Act. I don't know if it'll get through the Senate, but for the sake of human flourishing, I pray that it doesn't pass the Senate. 
But if that legislation goes through the Senate, then it will be certainly signed by our president. And what will likely take place is a direct conflict between the government's God-given responsibility to protect the freedom of worship and these devil-inspired corruptions of what it means to be human. And those two things will come directly in conflict with one another. And as frustrating as that is for us, and as wicked as that is for this nation, friends, this legislation means nothing in the face of the advancement of the gospel. If it is the will of God that Jesus be praised, then there's no obstacle. There's nothing to stop the proclamation of the gospel. Politics and political parties are nothing. Nations and laws and governments are nothing when stood up against the kingship of Jesus, the rock who crushes the kingdoms of the world. And because it is the will of God that Jesus is praised, the elect will always continue to praise Jesus. Christians, that means for us here in this room today, means we have nothing to fear. While there is this, this rapid, quickly accelerating cultural shift away from what appeared to be at least a neutrality towards Christianity, towards a hostile position against Christianity, we can be assured that because it is God's will that Jesus be praised, Jesus will be praised. The gospel will be proclaimed. It doesn't mean we won't ever be persecuted. What it means is that when we are persecuted or arrested or canceled or hated for who our king is, we will be able to count it all joy, as James says, because we are participating in the God-ordained worship and praise of King Jesus. Let me tell you what that also means for you at home. Right? It also means that because it is God's will that Jesus be praised, then God is going to continually raise up and call evangelists and missionaries and pastors to serve that mission. It also means that when you ask him to give you boldness to proclaim Christ to your family or to your neighbors or your classmates or your co-workers, it means God will answer that prayer because it is God's will that Jesus be praised. And do you know why? Do you know why God wills that Jesus be praised? Because Jesus is worthy of praise. As these little children in the temple or courtyard are singing in our text, he is Messiah King. He's the son of David. And as Jesus points out to us, he is God. That passage in Psalm 8 that, that Jesus is quoting out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you, you have prepared praise. The psalmist there, David, is saying that God has prepared praise for himself, not somebody else. Let me show you the text. Look at Psalm 8, 1 and 2. You know the first verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, if you're wondering, if that just caught you off guard, because <laughs> you're wondering, well, why does Jesus quote it as saying prepared praise? And our Bible says established strength. What's going on? Right? Well, just a quick aside, 
margin here for you. Our Old Testament is the Hebrew Bible translated into English. Jesus wasn't quoting the Hebrew Bible directly. He was quoting the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And the Greek translation translated into English is a prepared praise, okay, rather than established strength. The, the words, just so you can see side by side these two lines, those words, prepared and established, we can just look at those and say those are very, very similar, right? That we don't, I don't need to explain to you the difference there. It's a very similar meaning to us. But how about strength and praise? Because those seem like very different translations, don't they? Well, in Psalm 8, in the Hebrew, in our, in our Hebrew Bible, the children, the babies, are vindicating God. They are, it is through these little ones that God's strength, his majesty, is being revealed to all. Okay, so most likely what's happened is the Greek-speaking scribes who translated this from the Hebrew picked up on that idea. The children are vindicating God. They're showing his majesty. And they're just saying, well, God's strength is proclaimed by these children. In other words, the children are praising him. You see the connection? The point, though, is this. Either way you look at it, Jesus wants us to see that it is God who is the one being magnified in Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. And Jesus is taking that psalm of praise, which is for the Lord God, Yahweh God, and he's applying it to himself. He doesn't stop these children from praising him because he is very God of very God. He's worthy of praise. And by receiving praise from these children, we see more scripture being fulfilled. God himself has returned to his temple. And this is a big deal. Malachi 3.1. Malachi the prophet, speaking by the Holy Spirit, says this, Behold, I sent my messenger, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That was John the Baptist. We saw that already. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. That's Jesus. Messiah, Lord, he's come to his temple. And then what's happened? All of these people who were supposed to be expecting him, the religious leaders, they reject him. They'd rather have their traditions. They'd rather keep their position of power their authority, they'd rather have Caesar, they'd rather have the praise of the people, they'd rather have Herod than God himself. And what does Jesus do in response? He sees this, he hears this from them, he corrects them, and he turns and walks his way out. Verse 17, and leaving them, he went out of the city. Those are two very graphic words in the Greek. He leaves them. God leaves them, and he goes out of the city. Messiah King has come into the city. The Lord himself has returned to his temple, and he's rejected by the people who should have been overjoyed to see him. And so Jesus turns his back on them and leaves the city. And this is going to become really significant in the next couple chapters here. 
in Matthew. But before we get there, I want to show you why what we saw in our text today matters for Matthew in that big gospel story, okay? Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, is greater than David. We saw that. He's the one who welcomes the lame and the blind and heals them, something David could never have done. And then he's praised. And we saw that it's God's will that he be praised. And the only way that God would will that anyone be praised is if God is sharing his glory with that one. He's the son of God. He is divine, Yahweh. So those two truths have come together for us in a very graphic way. So when we get to the cross, we've got a few more chapters. We're going to get to the cross. We have to see that when that person, Jesus, Messiah, son of God, dies, this is extremely important. For Messiah, the anointed king, to die for the sins of his people, that's something that no other king in Israel's history had ever done or could have ever done. For God himself to shed his own blood for the sins of his people, something that never could have been conceived. And both of those things are true in the person of Jesus. And here's the thing that the apostles were proclaiming wherever they went and were willing to die for. It had to be this way. Friend, for your sins to be forgiven, it had to be this way. For you to be brought into Christ's eternal kingdom, it had to be this way. Jesus is fully man as the son of David, and he's fully God as the eternal son of God. If it weren't true, if this weren't true, then his death would be meaningless. He would be a footnote in history. Some guy who said he was the Messiah and died between two robbers, two rebels. But it is true. That's why we're here praising him. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is our Lord and God. And that's the only way that we could be saved by his death for us. And because of who Jesus is, because of what he's accomplished, he's worthy to have your entire life lived in submission to him as king, in obedience to him as king. He's worthy of your praise. Amen? Let's praise him. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us one who brings us into your kingdom. We thank you that you have loved us with a covenant love, an eternal love before the foundation of the world that you would give your own son for us. Thank you that this son is Messiah. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here right now who has is, is not received this kingship of Jesus into their life, if they haven't received this reality that their sins are forgiven and they don't have to live in the darkness of the world, they can live in the, the brightness of his kingdom, Lord, would you bring them into that truth this morning? Would you give them the ability to not just believe it, but to live it out? Let your Holy Spirit make them new, make them born again. We ask this in Christ's name.